chapter 6 and 7. This is the word of the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They have dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood, as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquities of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. Their thief breaks in and the bandits raid out. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like heated ovens who beggars cease to stir the fire from the eating of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the prince became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with Hearts like ovens, they approach their iniquities. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flame of fire. All of them are hot as ovens, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them call upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry out to me for their heart, from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arm, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword. Because of the insolence of their tongue, this shall be their destruction in the land of Egypt. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Why do we at times 
apologize for things that we do. And the question is really one of motive. Why do you at times seek forgiveness? Are you truly repentant for your actions? Or are you merely sad that you got caught? Are you simply trying to fulfill some sort of moral imperative? The right thing for me to do here is say I'm sorry. So whether I'm sorry or not, I'll say sorry. I remember something my grandma used to tell me growing up. Um, this is very, I think, typical of a grandma who came out of the World War II Depression era. And anytime I did something and said, I'm sorry, she said, don't say sorry unless you're actually going to do something different. Now, I think there's two parts to that. I think one part is, is good, one part is bad. I'll go ahead and knock out the bad part. I think that it's, it's certainly not true because we all are guilty of sinning over and over again, aren't we? Even though we can be truly repentant, there are times where we'll still mess up and so I can be sorry and still do it again. But I think there's the, another part of it that makes it very true is don't say sorry if you're not really going to seek to change your life. If you're not seeking to do something different, then it's not true repentance. It must come from right motives. Israel, as well as the church today, I believe, has a bad habit of using God as a safety net. We're going to play on the trapeze, but just in case we fall, God will be there to catch us. We live the way we want to live. Israel certainly did. <laughs> they did whatever they needed to do to achieve the way they wanted to live. Maybe the church will become whatever it needs to be to attract the world so the church becomes what we want it to be. But in Israel's history, they had come to a time where this wasn't working out so good for them. <clears throat> they had lived how they wanted to live, and things were turning bad. So they start in verse 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. If we just go back to Yahweh, everything's going to be all right. But at the end of the day for Israel, it wasn't about coming in true repentance. They simply didn't like the way things were going we can't become before god flippantly or arrogantly we have to do it rightly so as we come to this large body of text today we're going to see three things we're going to look at the posture of repentance the deeds of the people and the hope of the nation the posture of repentance the deeds of the people and the hope of the nations let's begin by looking at the posture of repentance as you look at the first three verses here it sounds really good let us return to the lord for he has torn us and if we return to him he'll heal us he'll bind us up he'll make us alive again okay he's waiting in his place then let's say we're sorry and he'll come and heal us. But is this true repentance? Or are they coming in an inadequate way? Because here's the thing. After those three verses, we see for the rest of the next chapter and all of chapter 7 that Israel has failed the loyalty test. They wanted quick healing. They wanted that instant gratification. 
But they didn't really long for Yahweh. They didn't long for his blessings. They didn't long for his presence. They continued in their faithlessness. So in response to this apparent repentance, how does Yahweh respond? What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like the morning cloud. They had just said that the love of Jesus was like a shower or a spring rain. And what they're saying is, or excuse me, the love of God. The love of God is like that rain that comes in the summer, you know, that rain that soaks your crops and makes them grow. And in response to them calling Yahweh that, he says, uh, you're like the summer rains. You know, that dew that comes early in the morning, but as soon as the sun comes out, it burns up and is gone. See the contrast here? One brings life. The other does nothing. It does no good at all. He says, the lo- your love, O Ephraim, o-, o Judah, is fleeting at best. I've brought to you prophets. I've brought to you judges. You've rejected them all. And so now I'm bringing judgment upon you. Just as the light pierces the darkness, so my judgment will come forth upon you. He says, for I desire, this is verse six, for I desired steadfast love and not sacrifice. In essence, and he's, he's pointing to the sacrificial system. He says, you continually come to me and sacrifice, and I don't want your sacrifices. You've turned these sacrifices into to some sort of ritual magic bullet. Oh, we've sinned again. Let's just go sacrifice. Oh, we're, we're doing not good. Let's just go sacrifice. But they weren't coming to sacrifice with a true heart of repentance. He said, I want your steadfast love. This word for steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant loyalty. I wanted your covenant fidelity. I wanted your covenant faithfulness. And you're just giving me sacrifices. You don't want, he goes on in verse six. You don't want the knowledge of God. You just want to burn offerings. They've transgressed and they come in this flippant way. Now I know when I was a kid and I know certainly my kids, I'm sure if you've had kids and you've probably done this too, when you're in trouble, I found that there became a point where if I just said, oh, I'm sorry, I could end the conversation, right? It was the desire to end the conversation. Just to throw it out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to do that. I want to end the conversation now. But it, I wasn't really sorry. And this is what Israel's doing. They're saying, hey, we sacrificed. We're okay now, right? No. Because it wasn't about heart change. They weren't really coming in repentance. It says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Whether this points to Adam, the first Adam, or this place called Adam... It's not exactly clear, but the point is that they've transgressed the covenant. 
They have dealt falsely with him. There's, it talks about Gilead, the city of evildoers. They're like robbers. They're like priests who murder. It's an interesting contrast here, right? They're like priests who weigh in late and wait and murder. And this, these two things seem like the opposite, right? Why would a band of priests be getting together, waiting for people to murder them in this valley? In the house of Israel, I have seen horrible, horrible things. Yahweh's covenant, Yahweh's faithfulness has been transgressed. They have been turned into a city of evildoers. Its leaders are evil. Its peoples are evil. They are full of political intrigue and treachery and wickedness. It's a picture of society unraveling at the seams, isn't it? (coughs) Because priests are supposed to be trustworthy. In the Old Testament, the priests are the people you took your sacrifices to so that they can make this reconciliation, this atonement for your sins before God. But instead of the priest being in their proper place of sacrificing, they're laying in wait and attacking and killing. It's an unraveling of society. They are ritually unclean. They are morally impure. And what is true for Ephraim is true for Judah. In essence, here again, he says in verse 11, for you also, Judah, it's the whole of the nation, the whole of those who would call themselves the people of God. So what's their problem? The problem is this. While they may stand in the posture of repentance, they have actually come in an unworthy manner. And like Israel, we cannot come before God in an unworthy manner. We cannot at times cry out, oh God, I'm sorry, but be doing it for selfish reasons. In essence, God cannot be plan B. God cannot be the backup plan when all else fails. We know all men transgress God, right? They all, all men have sinned against him. All men have turned from him to this world. All men have trusted in their own plans and not what he has planned. But the question is, how do we now approach him? How do we stand before God? God makes it very clear here as he addresses Israel through Hosea. Judgment is coming for you. You stand in the posture of repentance, but your heart has not been changed. And he goes on and he talks about the things that they've done. This is the second point, the deeds of the people as we start into verse or chapter 7. He said, when I would heal Israel, when I would, in essence, when I would come and restore you, I actually then see your wickedness. The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. I have seen your deeds. You are thieves. You are marauders. You have violated my covenant. 
and I will act in judgment because of your deeds. He says in verse 2, now their deeds surround them and they fear me before my fa- and they are before my face. And the, this idea of their deeds being around them, their evil being remembered, it, it's it's this kind of the sense of if you were to, to, to use a phrase today that would make sense to us is evil begets evil. That's what he's saying to them. Your evil is producing evil. What is surrounding you now is homegrown wickedness. It's not from without. It's from within. It says your kings, they're made glad by your evil. By their evil, they make the king glad. And it's so perverse, isn't it? When we talk about evil, when we talk about sin, and you talk about the king's position, the king is made happy because of their wickedness. The king is taken in by their devious plotting, their adultery, their treachery. So not only the people, but the whole leadership, the nation is wicked. And then interestingly, in starting in verse 4 and going on down here, he begins to talk about baking. Because when I think about wickedness and sin, I tend to think about baking, right? I mean, that's, that's a joke. You can laugh. It's kind of obscure here what he's talking about. But he says, you're like a heated oven. What do they mean? Like whose baker ceases to stir the fire from kneading of the dough until it is leavened. In modern English, you might say something like this. They're cooking something up. So you stoke a fire, right? But at some point, as you knead the bread, you stop stoking the fire. You let it remain heated. Because what does the bread need to do? It needs to raise. And this is what he says. It's like you're plotting. And you're doing it carefully. You're cooking up a plan. You're conceiving a plan of action. Until the bread is leavened, and then once it has, the plot will be unhatched. There's a wickedness to the people. A wickedness that is intentional. When you think about a baker and what a baker does, my wife doesn't like to bake. And do you know why my wife doesn't like to bake? Because there's a precise action to baking, isn't there? When you're cooking meat or something like that, we throw a little salt here, a little pepper here, you throw it, you cook it. It's hard in some ways to mess that up, right? But if you mess up baking, what happens? You got to start all over again. It messes up, right? It's a very precise thing. Unlike some other cooking, you have to measure when you bake. It's precise, so it's not, the, the, the intent here is, it's not just like they fell into some sort of evil act. It was planned. It was plotted. It says, on that day, on the day of our king, his coronation day or his birthday, the, the princes become sick with the heat of the wine. They're literally drinking themselves into inebriation. And they stretch out their hands with the mockers. They have set their hearts like ovens. 
this fire that smolders at night and they heat up in the morning, bringing their plans to fruition. The leaders have fallen, the judges have fallen, the kings have fallen, Israel's leadership is coming to an end because they are turning from God. Like, okay, well, you've made a little more clear what seemed like seemingly very unclear, but what's the point? What do we take away from this this morning? And I think the thing we have to realize is, is that in many ways, our hearts are no different. Particularly, you take away Jesus from the equation, and our hearts are certainly no different. We too, as the king, can be taken in by the plotting of this world. We buy into the things that the world values. We cherish the things that the world cherishes. We delight in its evil schemes. And we don't like to think of ourselves as schemers. But how often do we actually operate the way the world operates? When someone gets on our nerves and we don't like them or their personalities are different from ours. So we go off and we talk to others. Oh, I don't like the way they do this. I don't, I don't like, I just can't stand this. In our hearts, we scheme, we plot, we gossip. How often do we decide people just don't belong? Or we won't reach out to this certain type of people who looks a certain kind of way. It begins to affect all of our life. How often at work do we go, okay, well, this is work life and not church life. And I can do what I need to do to get ahead. I can rest and trust in myself and what I can bring. We like to elevate ourselves to places of importance. And then we plot and scheme to keep ourselves in that elevated place of importance. And before you know it, this, this survey, this Evilness and wickedness has come into all of our lives, affecting our life before God, affecting our life before one another, and affecting our lives before the world. It becomes all that we do, about all of us, about all that we do. I think it, it creeps into the church as well in subtle ways. How do we choose our leaders? Why do we choose our leaders? Are we putting them there because they're godly people? Or are we putting them there because of some sort of thing? Oh, they brought money to the church or that to the church. When the church begins to look like the world, I think this is what he's talking about here. Israel wanted to look like the world. They desired to look like the world. And so they plotted and schemed as the world plotted and schemed. They bought into their love of wealth and money and possessions and power. And we can do the same. And what are we to do? What was Israel to do? Well, Israel, they turned to Egypt and Assyria. Because that's the natural thing you do when you're in trouble, right? Turn to foreign nations. Seek healing and help from them. 
verse 8 of chapter 7, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. You ever been making pancakes? This is in essence what he's talking about here. Turning of a cake. If you pour the batter onto the skillet or whatever you're cooking it in and you just leave it there, what happens? The bottom burns, right? What happens to the top? It's still gooey, right? Now, if you're making a pancake, which I love pancakes, and you don't turn the cake, you get something that is not supposed to be. It's not serving the function. It's it's wrong. And that's what he says of Ephraim. This is the people of Israel. You are a cake not turned. You are not serving the function for which you are to, to serve. Strangers, this is the four nations, devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. Again, this is, it's a deception, right? It's saying you're old and you don't even know you're old. You've got gray hairs on your head and you're acting like you're still a youth. I love my father. He's coming this evening. I'll try to keep him far from me also. No one tells him I told the story. <laughs> my father used to have the worst comb over. The worst comb over. The kind where like when he took a shower, the, the hairs like were down to his shoulder. Bad comb over. It was terrible. And finally my oldest sister said, you've got to cut that thing off. It's terrible. And he did, and he looked much better. The problem is, so he took this comb over, and he went, right? I vowed, you'll never see me with a comb over. I hated that comb over. You'll never see me with a comb over. And what? it was a deception, right? I'm trying to represent that I'm not as old as I say I am. This is what he's saying. You've got gray hairs, and you don't even know it. These strangers, these nations have devoured your strength. And you don't even know it. And the essence is this. When we, we go to the world and we seek strength in the world, what they do is they make us have a deceived notion of ourselves. We think we have power. We think we have authority. But we're only deceiving ourselves. They do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. And then he calls them like a dove. He says, you're like a dove. Now, on, on the onset, we might go, oh, well, that's nice. Dove is this, oh, it's peace, right? We think of Noah. No. Doves are stupid. Doves are so stupid that you could trap them in the same spot and they would keep coming back. They wouldn't wise up. And this is what they would do. Doves were eaten in this, in this culture, and they would put a net above a dove, and then they would trap, bait them, and they would literally drop the net. And when you know what? They needed more doves. They just put more bait out, and they just raised the net because doves were dumb. They were really dumb. He says, you're like doves. Silly, without sense. You called to Egypt and Assyria. But you know what Egypt and Assyria are to you? They're just a trap. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of heaven. I think today this is the church when it says, the government will save me. My elected officials will save me. If we can just get this person in office, it's going to save the church. And that's a lie. 
And we pray for godly leaders. We want godly leaders. I'm not saying that. But the only person who can save the church, the only uh, thing that can save the church is God himself. He is the only hope of the nations. We cannot be so silly or without sense that we don't see this. Or Yahweh will come and discipline. A cry of woe is pronounced upon Israel. Verse 13, woe to them. For they are strayed, for they have strayed from me. They stand guilty before God. They have rejected and spurned his divine instructions. They have not turned to him or sought him in sincerity. They are clueless. They do not cry to me from the heart. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. The call here is, and they did, they cried out to God for three verses. They cried out to God and he says, you're not calling to me from the heart. You are not calling to me from the heart. You are devising evil. You're rejecting my instruction. You are mixing with the nations. They are like a treacherous bow, he calls them. Again, this is, I think, language that is so descriptive and yet we can easily lose sight of. A treacherous bow, and he's talking about a bow and arrow. If a bow and arrow is faulty, is weak in any way, and you pull it back, and a a real bow and arrow is under a lot of tension, isn't it? What happens if you're sitting here like this with a bow and arrow and the tension snaps? It's not good. When they talk about bows and arrows, they often talk about what poundage is it, right? How many pounds? What weight is that? Because it's under this immense strain. And if a bow snaps, it's going to snap in your face. It's going to hurt. He says they're like a treacherous bow. You think that they're, you're using them to be functioning to help you, but they're not. They're going to blow up in your face in essence. They will not serve the function that they were meant to do. And they will endanger the one who seeks to wield them. It's interesting because he ends in 16 by saying their derision, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. In essence, this is like a full reversal here. He's saying basically in in Egypt, they're going to laugh at you. And what was significant about Egypt for Israel? Israel, that or Egypt, that's the place where Israel was called, this is my people. Let my people go. And when they eventually left Egypt, do you know what they took with them? The spoils of Egypt. They left with the riches of Egypt when they left. And he says, this is a full reversal. They're going to laugh at you and mock you in Egypt. Because you have turned your backs to God. Israel placed its hopes in the nations in the same way we place our hope in society and politics and leaders. We cannot reject the divine training and instruction that we see here. The church, the people of God, must be what he has called us to be. 
we must come in faith and repentance, knowing we stand guilty apart from him. We must be what he has called us to be. Because here's the problem. I, I entitled this last point, The Hope of the Nations, right? And you would expect, or I should say the hope of the nation, you would expect that to be somewhat of a positive thing. But it's not, for Israel at least. Because Israel put its hope in the nation of Egypt and Assyria. The reality is that there's only one hope for the nations, and that's Jesus Christ, the one true king. The king who comes and does not delight in the evil and the evil schemes and the plotters and who does not rejoice in the deeds of the people, these evil deeds. There's a warning here for us. We must always be looking at our, to our repentance. Are we seeking truly to come in faith, to turn from sin to God? Or are we simply seeking to have an easy out? We have to be reminded of the fact that we will be judged for our deeds. For the things that we do. He sees what we do. And all those things that are done contrary to him. Evil and wickedness will bring judgment on on us. And in our distress we cannot turn to the world. It holds nothing for us. They mock us with the emptiness that they offer. We cannot seek salvation in them. They only will scorn us. We must turn to the one and only source of salvation, the one and only true king. That is Jesus Christ. This is what the people in Hosea's day had missed. They had come to God in this flippant, half-hearted way. Come, let us return to the Lord. But it was just posturing. It was mere empty words. But the words aren't wrong. There's a call here. Let us return to the Lord. Because he is the one who will bind us up. Don't miss the uh, allusions here. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. They said the words, but they missed it. But the words are nonetheless true. He is the one who will raise us up and enable us to live before him. We must know the Lord. For he will shower his blessings upon us. Do you know the Lord? Are you seeking him as your one true king? Are you coming to him in faith and repentance? Or is it posturing? Are we seeking him as our one true king and yet at the same time placing our hope in this world? It can't be both. We must come in true faith, in true repentance, placing our hope and trust wholly in him, being faithful to his word, to what he has taught us, and in him find healing and strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word, and this is a hard text this morning. For Israel had turned its back on you.
For, Lord, you don't want our sacrifice. You don't want our empty words. You want a broken and contrite heart. Would we come broken before you? Would we come in humbleness and meekness? And would we come and seek your face? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Uh, come stand.